Well, good morning. What a wonderful way to teach Sunday school in the absence of your faithful teacher, Tim Dunn. I'm Dave Anderson. I'm the president of Grace School of Theology. And we're doing a couple things as a test this morning. One, uh, of course, is to teach a Sunday school class. The other is to beta test to see if this is a format that would be good for uh, reaching students abroad. Uh, it's the goal of our seminary to have a student in every country of the world in the next five years. And we're looking for the best way technologically to reach them. I just came back from Kiev in which uh, they don't have the kind of internet service there that we, we think we need. So we're looking at, at different ways and this might be one. I'm speaking to you from the well-known CNM Studios. That's Carl and Matt uh, here in Midland, Texas. Uh, just a word about our school before we go on, and that is uh, a creditor sent a team in this past week, spent a week with us, gave us flying colors. So we go up to Chicago on November 8th to get their final verdict, and a really good chance we'll be a fully accredited school November 8th, which would be a small miracle in itself, and uh, or maybe a big one. I want to thank those of you who've helped us with your prayers and finances and uh, use of your church in, in many other ways. So thank you for that. Uh, Tim told me that you had begun the book of Hebrews and uh, talked about its uh, background some and its overall thrust. So I'll try to pick up where he left off. If we, we overlap somewhat, uh, I think you'll understand. Uh, a key to the whole book uh, is set out from the very beginning when it says he inherited a better name. But if you search through uh, chapter 1 for the better name, uh, you never run into the word Jesus. Uh, it says in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a, more, a better, a more excellent name than they. The word name. But you go throughout chapter 1, you don't see the name Jesus, you don't see the name Christ, you never see Jesus Christ. And it turns out the better name is Son. Notice verse 5 starts with four, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Now we'll talk a bit about the background of that uh, word, Son. It's a key for this book. Uh, but at the same time, uh, before we get to that, uh, let me just show you that uh, it's a theme that goes throughout the entire book, and it's not just connected to Jesus, uh, the Son, it's also connected to us. Chapter 2, verse 10 may well give the theme verse for the whole book. Here it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus was the Son, and he gives human beings the opportunity to become sons. Now, what do we mean by that uh, Son? And we'll look at that in more detail. But essentially, this is a book about salvation through sonship. And the sonship we're talking about uh, is something that comes through faithful service. It's actually part of our inheritance we receive from him. Uh, that every single one of his children is just that, a child. Everyone is born again as a child. Everyone is born again will spend eternity with him. But not every child of his goes on to maturity. Uh, not every child of his uh, becomes a son. 
Even the Savior, the captain of our salvation, it says in verse 10 here, was made perfect through sufferings. And sufferings are a big part of becoming a son. And so I would say the first 10 chapters of this book are about the superiority of the faithful son, that, of course, being Jesus, showing he's superior to the angels here in chapter 1. He's superior to uh, Moses, the mediator of the uh, covenant known as the law. Uh, We have a better covenant and a better mediator uh, and uh, and a, a better law, so to speak, the law of Christ instead of the law of Moses, the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. So it goes through the superiority of Christ, a superior priest, superior uh, mediator, superior to the angels. And then after establishing his superiority, then in chapter 11, 12, and 13, I would call that the search for faithful sons. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, many people call that the uh, hall of faith, not fame, but faith, meaning he goes through uh, Abraham and uh, all the way down through Rahab and the prophets who remained faithful even though they did not receive the promise uh, and they went through uh, tremendous suffering. These are sons. Uh, And now he tells us in chapter 12 that we too should persevere. We should look to the author and finisher of our faith. We should run the race laying aside every sin that so easily besets us. We should be willing to undergo discipline when we step out of line for it's the sign of the father's love as a uh, father chastens his son, uh, showing him his love. And that we're marching toward a heavenly city, a city that already is, the, the new heavenly Jerusalem that someday will come down out of the third heaven. So, chapter 1 through 10 is the superiority of the faithful son. Chapter 11 through 13 is the search for faithful sons, plural. Uh, both overarched by the concept of salvation through sonship. Of course, that takes us back to what kind of salvation we're talking about, and I think Tim went over that with you quite well last week from what he's told me. This is not salvation from the penalty of sin. In this case, it's not even salvation from the presence of sin or salvation from the uh, power of sin. This is talking about saving your life for eternity, that after you're born again, God's given you so much time That time can be saved or it can be lost. It's saved as we live for him, as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's lost when we live for our own selfish purposes. This is all set up back in chapter uh, 1 by some amazing uh, usage of the Old Testament. Uh, There's so many things to talk about this, but for further background, I need to introduce you to something called the reward covenant. Uh, You had two basic types of covenant in the ancient Near East. You had the reward covenant, which was obviously rewarding you for past obedience. And then you had the lordship covenant. And the lordship covenant was motivating you to future obedience. Let me say that again. The lordship covenant motivated you toward future obedience. Scholars call that the Susan T. Vassal Treaty. The entire book of Deuteronomy is a lordship covenant. It is motivating the generation that's about to go across the River Jordan 
to faithful service, to keep the commandments, to uh, possess the land. And it has a number of blessings that will come and accrue if they're faithful. It has cursings that will take place if they're not faithful. It tells them by way of warning, if you don't keep the commandments, I'll put you out of the land. Chapter 30, if you repent, I'll bring you back. At the same time, though, it is a motivation toward future obedience. That's what we call a lordship covenant. The other type of covenant we find in the Old Testament is one that's taken right out of the surrounding nations. It was a common covenant form of the time. The scholar's name for it is the covenant grant, but a grant was simply a reward. Uh, let me try to set it up this way. Let's say the uh, king of Dallas and the king of uh, Houston uh, go to war. And the king of Dallas defeats the king of Houston. So he makes all the citizens or the inhabitants of Houston his subjects, uh, his vassals, his servants. And then he goes back to Dallas because he says, I don't like the heat in Houston. I'm going back to Dallas to live. But I'm going to put someone in charge, sort of a mayor of the city, and I'll return from time to time and find out who's faithful, who's been a faithful servant for me, and I'll reward him. By the way, while I'm gone, I guarantee to defend you against the king of San Antonio. I guarantee you all the water you need. I guarantee you food, electricity, uh, protection, everything you need will be provided for you. All I ask in return is that you serve me faithfully. Okay, what I just described to you was a lordship covenant uh, in which the king of Dallas has overcome the king of Houston, sets up uh, a covenant between the inhabitants of Houston and himself in which he is their lord, they are his servants. Now that's the book of Deuteronomy, folks, but that's the way it was literally used in the ancient Near East. Now, after two years, let's say he comes down to, for a visit, and he calls the mayor of Houston, and he says, okay, tell me who has been a faithful servant while I've been gone. And the mayor calls up uh, Tim Dunn, even though he lives in Midland. We'll pretend he lives in Houston. And he says, Tim's really been faithful. And so the king of Dallas says, okay, I want to reward him. So what we're going to do is give him a piece of real estate. Uh, we'll give him River Oaks. And uh, all around River Oaks at the boundary lines, we'll put little stone markers with a copy of this covenant. On this uh, covenant, this reward covenant, I'll say, I, King of Dallas, give to Tim Dunn, my faithful servant, this piece of land. And this piece of land will belong to him and his children forever, his children's children, in perpetuity, forever it belongs to them. No one can take it from them. If someone tries to, they'll have to answer to me. And by the way, uh, in giving this uh, reward to Tim, uh, the king of Dallas would call him up to the stage there in Houston. In front of all the cameras, he would put him through an adoption ceremony. And the wording of that ceremony is especially important for understanding Hebrews 1 and some of the rest of the Bible. In that ceremony, he would say, okay, uh, Tim, heretofore, this is the king of Dallas speaking, heretofore I've called you my servant. No longer will I call you my servant. From now on, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. 
This day I have begotten you. This day I have begotten you. Now, uh, folks, that's exactly what's going on in this particular passage, only the words are directed to Jesus. Uh, Martin Hengel, in his book, The Son of God, has carefully and uh, definitively shown three stages in the sonship of Jesus Christ. First of all, as the second person of the Godhead from eternity past, he was the Son of God. That was his role. And then when uh, he came into this world, and of course there was no Jesus Christ in eternity past, because Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and perfect humanity in one person forever. So that didn't exist until Bethlehem, or if you want to say conception, at Nazareth. But when those two came together, Jesus was born. But it wasn't until his baptism, when the heavens opened and the voice of God came down and saying, this is my beloved son, in who I am well pleased. At that point, uh, Jesus began his sonship as the servant. And as Isaiah 53 says, as the suffering servant. He was a faithful servant. Uh, as it says here in uh, Hebrews, he was perfected through his sufferings. He was tempted but did not falter. There was no sin found in him. So he succeeded in his mission, as uh, Isaiah 52 says, his skill. It says he will succeed. And he did succeed. Uh, as proof of the acceptance of his sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the whole world, uh, he was taken up, uh, meaning resurrected. The resurrection is proof that God was satisfied with his offering. Then he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What you're reading in Hebrews 1, then, is an adoption ceremony that took place in the third phase of the sonship of Jesus Christ. Remember the first phase, eternity passed. And in that phase, he's the creator. We'll read about that in a minute. In the second phase, he's the suffering servant, but he's the son of God. And he turns to Mary and says, Woman, what do I have to do with you to signify a new phase of even his earthly existence? When he's stepping out from under his parents' shadow, and Joseph may well have been I have passed on at the time Jesus begins, steps out from under his mother, begins his ministry, uh, and at that point, he is the Son of God serving in the mission God sent him down to fulfill. At the ascension, though, the Father's looking down, and he goes through the adoption ceremony of saying, You have been a faithful servant. Now I'm going to reward you. And uh, I am no longer calling you a servant. I'm calling you a son. Today I have begotten you. Now, one of the problems with this passage is when people see the word begotten, they think it's talking about birth. And a very famous uh, Bible teacher here in America actually denied the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ because of this word begotten. And he actually says Jesus wasn't begotten in eternity past. Uh, what he was missing there is the covenant background of this passage. Uh, I did a lot of work on this personally in my graduate studies. I actually translated 300 of these grants from uh, the French. The French are, were the great uh, archaeologists of the ancient world, and I don't read Assyrian, but these were Assyrian land grants, or what they called Kuduru, and they've been translated into French. And they have the same formula over and over and over and over. I, Marapapsui, recognize you, Supinilama, as my faithful servant. You have served me well. This day, I'm adopting you as my son. I will be a father to you. You will be a son to me. 
So that was part of the adoption formula. But that didn't stop there. The giving of the land is crucial here. Almost always the reward was a land grant. And what we're going to see in this Hebrews 1, God willing, time's clicking away, is that Jesus got a piece of land. And what was the piece of land he was given? It was planet Earth. That was his land grant. Now we remember that the first Adam was to take dominion over the Earth. Uh, he failed. Uh, Noah was to take dominion over the Earth. He failed. So finally God realizes he'll have to bring a Savior to come in and do what the first Adam failed to do. So the second Adam is going to come in and take dominion over the earth. And for that to happen, he has to be given the earth and come back and set up his kingdom for a thousand years in order to take dominion over the earth. That's why dispensational theology is so very important. Without an understanding of the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, the second Adam can never fulfill what the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam was to take dominion over the earth, Genesis chapter 1. In order to answer the two great questions of the universe, which are, is God worthy of being loved, and does God have the right to rule the universe, both of which Lucifer raised uh, when he rebelled against God, in order to answer those questions, uh, God created man, as Psalm 8 will talk about in this passage, uh, in chapter 2 anyway, and he created man to obey him, to follow his commandments, and one of those was to take dominion over the earth. The second Adam will come back and do that. He'll do it through his thousand-year reign on earth. The planet earth is a reward given to the faithful son. Now, uh, you're probably already drifting. I would be at this point, watching a uh, tape of this and uh, not being able to ask questions. So let me try to jump in and say, how does this affect you? Because the entire book of Hebrews is about you staking your claim in the dominion reign of Christ. Uh, the rest prepared for the people of God, as you get further into this book, is talking about the millennial period and the place that you will play in it. And the bringing many sons to glory is to say God wants to reward every single one of his children. And the reward he wants to do is after we have served him faithfully on earth, just as Jesus served him faithfully on earth, even if it entails suffering, as it did for Jesus, entailed suffering. Through that suffering, we should be made mature. Through maturity, we go from, uh, in the Greek world, from the napios, the child or baby, to the technia, the little children, to the techna, the children, and finally the weoi, the sons. We become sons, as Romans talked, chapter 8 talks about. And someday... He says, I don't consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in the sons of God when Jesus comes back. He's going to reveal which of his children have gone on to become sons. Now that's crucial, folks, because this debate on this book surrounds whether the readers are believers or professing believers, people who claim to be Christians but may not be. And one whole branch of theology says... If you don't persevere to the end, faithful in your walk, then you never were one of his children to begin with. Another branch says if you don't persevere faithful in your walk, then you lose the salvation that you had. But if the issue here is not heaven and hell, if the issue here is not whether you get in the kingdom or not, but the issue is whether you are rewarded in that kingdom and whether you are a son in that kingdom and whether you stake your claim in that millennial kingdom, 
you read the book entirely differently. What I'm suggesting is that uh, the reward covenant language that we have right here, taken right out of Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, uh, the Davidic covenant, is setting up the whole book as a book of rewards. All right? Now, let's time get too far from us. I need to show you how chapter 1 breaks down into two main sections, uh, one which scholars call the exordium, that's verses 1 through 4, and another which they call the exhortation. But uh, to see this, I have a little PowerPoint, and um, we'll go through this quickly and then back up and try to spend some time on it. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, Christmas sermons, by the way. Uh, to help us better appreciate uh, what child is this, just who was uh, Jesus Christ. The first four verses make up uh, the exordium, verses 1 through 4. Uh, and what, uh, uh, well, let me run through it and then we'll go back and start reading it. Uh, we get a statement of his exaltation in uh, verse 4. Uh, excuse me, in verses 1 through 4. And then a statement of his him as the creator. And then a statement of his divinity, that he's God. But as we do this, notice we're going back in time. Uh, the exaltation took place at his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Obviously, his creative work took place when the universe was created. But before this universe existed, God existed. He was there. So we we're going back in time. But then we start coming uh, full circle back to where we started. He comes back to creation again to show that he is the one who is sustaining creation. And then we go back to his exaltation, which it, where it mentions his heirship. Heirship was the reward that the faithful believer got. Jesus was the faithful servant. And so at his Ascension to the right hand of the Father, that's his exaltation. That's where he's rewarded with this name above any of the angels, no angel, ever called uh, the Son in this sense. Uh, and at the same time, uh, he is given his land grant, uh, planet Earth. But now, in order to support this, the writer of Hebrews dips back into the Old Testament. No book uses the Old Testament. Uh, more in, in no New Testament book uses the old more than does the book of Hebrews. Well, why not? He's writing to Jewish Christians, Hebrews, Jewish Christians. Not an issue of going to heaven or not, but an issue of will they find the sonship that God has carved out for them. So he takes each point in his exaltation, in, in the exordium, in these verses, and supports it with a passage of scripture. Uh, his exaltation he supports, uh, uh, we'll go back and read from uh, Psalm 1 and Second uh, Samuel 7, in which he's saying, I'll be a father to you and you will be a son to me. That's his exaltation. That's when it took place. Uh, then we'll go back and see that he's uh, the creator. Uh, he made the angels. 
then we'll see that he's the exact uh, uh, expression of God and his effulgence. That was back in the exordium. But in this passage, we'll go back to another psalm to show that he's actually called God. That's how he was addressed. And then we'll come into the creative work again, and this time we'll show not the original creation, but how he folds up creation someday uh, when time, uh, when he's going to bring in the new Jerusalem. He will fold up creation. And then we come back to his exaltation again when we get to Psalm 110, uh, where he quotes Psalm 110, verse A and B. Uh, your enemies I have put under your footstool. Now, you know, uh, originally just Psalm 110a is quoted, but when we get to verse uh, 13, we have Psalm 110b quoted as long with A as a transition leading into chapter 2, where he deals with the two enemies of death and the devil. Uh, but with that in mind, you can see how carefully this whole passage is laid out. So uh, kind of backing up, uh, what child is this? He's the exalted one. Uh, he is uh, the creator. He's not just the exalted one and the creator. He's the very God. And he is the sustainer of creation. Uh, and we're going to see that uh, there is one thing in the exordium not found in the exposition that I have uh, jumped right over in this PowerPoint and how it's going to introduce us to uh, his priesthood. And so what we're looking at is Jesus as the king priest. And Psalm 110 uh, says he'll make him a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but also says he will rule from Zion with the scepter of his power. Uh, in the ancient world, the king was usually the high priest. They were one and the same person. And the Hebrews, the Israelites, wanted a king just like the surrounding nations. They wanted a king priest. Uh, David wrote Psalm 110. It's the most referenced piece of Old Testament in the New. 33 references to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Uh, many times just quoted directly, sometimes just alluded to. Um, but uh, in Hebrews is the only one uh, where it mentions his kinghood, and that's chapter 1 and 2, and then his priesthood, and that's picked up in chapter 5, moving on into the end. But his priesthood is hinted at, at here in uh, chapter 1. So um, let's get out of this and uh, go back and start working our way through this. So God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So what he's saying here is God had many modes of revelation in the past, dreams, direct appearances, uh, even speaking through donkeys. Uh, some have alluded to uh, present-day preachers that, well, we won't go into that. But uh, he says, in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. And he's really saying Jesus is the capstone of the revelation of God. There is no higher revelation than Jesus Christ himself. And the implication is, especially from chapter 2, that once the Son uh, came on the scene, he was the apex of God's revelation, and God wouldn't, as a norm, be speaking through dreams and uh, visions and things like that. But he's appointed him to be heir of all things. All right, that's the first point on our ring, as soon as you see the word heir. 
Now we have to remember that heirship in general is a reward in the New Testament. You see this from uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, in which it says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do, do, do. He's talking about serving the Lord. Why should I do it heartily? Verse 24, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Notice it says, Reward of the inheritance. Inheritance is looked at primarily in the New Testament as a reward. So when you get to this uh, word heir in Hebrews 1, you're immediately looking at the reward that Jesus got for being a faithful uh, servant during his mission on earth. Heir of all things. Now in our ring we're moving back through whom he also made uh, the worlds. And then moving back, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person. Uh, these words speak of essence, that he has all the attributes of the Father, that he's exactly uh, the same in his divinity, in his uh, godhood, if you want to coin a word. And then we come in our ring to the upholding of all things by the word of his power, uh, his sustaining work, keeping uh, creation going, as it were. And finally says, when he had purged him, uh, our sins. That's the uh, one thing I uh, jumped over as we went through our two rings. We said, what child is this? And we answered that. He is the exalted one. He is uh, the creator. He's the very God. He's the sustainer. But he's also the purifier. Uh, that gets into not who or, I mean the what, but it gets into who. Uh, who he is. Why did he come? What did he do? He came down to make purification for our sins. Well, uh, after doing that, he goes right back to, after purging our sins, he comes full circle back to sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, being so much better than the angels as he is by inheritance, again, reward, obtained a more excellent name than they. So you're back to his exaltation. From the moment you see sat down through inheritance, that's the last part of the ring coming full circle. So now, the support. The four, beginning verse five, picks right up on the more excellent name that he just talked about. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, when he says that, he's coming right out of Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is recognized by most evangelical scholars as a messianic psalm in which the nations of the earth uh, are raging, the kings of the earth are conspiring, this, rule, this word counsel, the rulers take counsel together. It's, it's a conspiracy. They're trying to have a one world government against the Lord's anointed. Again, the word anointed in Hebrew being Mashiach, and in, of course in Greek, Christos or Christ. But this conspiracy is against Jesus. 
And you don't have to read much news in this day and age to realize there is a conspiracy against Jesus. My, my, my. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Well, who's that? The Lord and his anointed. <clears throat> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. A quick word about prophecy. You may have heard of the double reference, the historical reference, and the prophetic reference. This was a psalm of David uh, honoring the coronation of his son Solomon as king. Solomon was the historical reference. Uh, for all David knew, Solomon was going to fulfill the Davidic covenant and have a kingdom that would last uh, forever, that he would be the ideal king. He did not realize during his lifetime that Solomon would lead the people into idolatry. Uh, this we know from the New Testament's use right there in Hebrews 1, uh, that Solomon didn't fit the bill, and Israel waited and waited and waited for an ideal king to fill the bill, finally realized all they were going to do is bring in idolatry, so God got rid of the monarchy. The people then waited, and there was a building desire for a Messiah, someone who delivered them from the Romans, and before that from the Greeks. So uh, what we have here in Hebrew is what we call uh, technically a proleptic perfect, and all that means is he's talking about the future as though it were already accomplished. Uh, He's saying uh, a better way to translate this to get that across might be, I most surely am going to set up my king on my holy hill in Zion. Did you get that? I most assuredly, emphatically am going to set up my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he uses a tense that kind of makes it as though it's a done deal. I'm so sure that's going to happen, it's already a done deal. So I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, and here we go, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now remember folks, this is literally talking uh, in, in the historical referent about Solomon. So on his coronation day, his enthronement day, David isn't saying today I have begotten you. It's because this is adoption formula, it's reward formula, it's enthronement uh, talk, it's reigning talk. And so... Uh, he says, this, uh, ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Again, see, reward, inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now, you remember the Jews were going to go across the river Jordan and do two things. This is Deuteronomy. Go into the land and possess the land. The word for inheritance and possession are used interchangeably uh, in the Hebrew language. In Jesus' case, his inheritance is planet earth. His kingdom, the millennial kingdom, uh, his possession will be planet earth. Uh, this is what we call synonymous parallelism in Hebrew, in which they didn't have rhyming to do their poetry, but this is poetry. This was a song sung by the temple choir. And so uh, he's saying the same thing twice. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Now he says the same thing over again. And the ends of the earth for your possession. So what I'm doing there is trying to show you that possession and inheritance are the same thing, and they speak of his reward. Whole psalm is about Jesus coming back to set up his kingdom. That's why at the end, 
It says, all right, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with rejoice and trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Okay, that was the first reference uh, in Hebrews. And I hope you can see the whole context of this is reward, inheritance, possession. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, I will be a father to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, here's the better name. Got that out of Psalm 2, my son. Gets that out of Second Samuel chapter 7, son again. Now, what you have in Second Samuel 7 is, again, highly significant, because here we're into the great Davidic covenant. I will be his father, he shall be my son. Uh, notice this is spoken to David. Uh, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. This is the Davidic promise. Uh, this is a reward covenant. Uh, this is a reward for past obedience. If you go to Kings, you'll read that David was faithful uh, in all the matters concerning the commandments and statutes and ordinances of God, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And we all know what that was. And it says because of that, God gave him this promise, this covenant. So uh, this reward is not a piece of land. This reward is a dynasty. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A dynasty. Uh, a kingdom. I will be his father, he shall be my son. So you have the adoption terminology again. You have the reward covenant referred to. All this in Hebrews 1. Now the Hebrews would have instantly recognized all this. We don't today because it's also foreign to our thinking and our, uh, we don't talk in terms of reward covenants, Susan New Vassal covenants, things like that, but they did. The only reason for his going back to the Old Testament over and over and over and over to establish his points is he knew his readers knew this stuff. He knew they were familiar with it. Uh, he knew they camped on it, especially these people who were looking for a Messiah. Uh, these, are, that, that's a, these are both messianic promises. And they support the exaltation of the Son uh, at his ascension, being rewarded as a faithful son, a faithful servant, now becoming adopted as a son. Well, now he dips back to support the idea that he's the creator. Verse 6, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, this phrase right here, Who makes his angels spirits. People... Uh, uh, I've been asked to speak on the first few words of Genesis at a church here uh, the first weekend of uh, January. Uh, the title is In the Beginning. Uh, but that's a big question. When was the beginning? Some people will say, well, uh, it was Genesis 1-1. Other people will say, well, it was uh, Job 38 when he created the universe and uh, the angels shouted for joy. Well, uh, we know neither of those is true. Uh, 
scientists define time as cause and effect. Uh, if you have a cause and you, an effect, then they say that's time. Uh, and the beginning of time was not Genesis 1-1 or Job 38. Why? Because the angels existed before the universe was created. And the angels are created beings. So God, the efficient cause, created the angels, the effect, and time began before time as we count it in our universe. He made the angels, spirits, and his ministers at flame of fire. He was the creator, time before time. Uh, but to the Son, he says, now he's going back to his divinity. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Don't miss this, folks. Uh, really, if you forget everything else I've said, just noting, noticing this is, is worth it. Uh, when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and uh, you try to show them that Jesus was God from John chapter 1, uh, they'll pull out their Watchtower translation and say he was a God. Uh, he wasn't the God. Well, don't open up John 1. That's too complicated to explain to him. Just go here. Verse 8. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. It's the only place in all the New Testament where Jesus is directly called God. In fact, these scholars, grammarians, have a term for this. It's called nominative of address. And I'll never forget in my orals, I was asked to explain this. And I... Uh, said nominative of address. And Dan Wallace, who's the resident, one of the resident grammarians, said, put his fist on the table like this, wham, and said, that's right, he really was God, wasn't he? And I said, yes, uh, Dr. Wallace, he really was God and is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, as we go through this, I want you to keep your eye on, on this idea of kingdom. Every single quotation in this uh, catena of, of the exposition or all these verses stuck together is a messianic kingdom reference, except one. There's only one in this whole list. That's Psalm 104. All the rest of these speak of his ultimate reigning in that millennial kingdom. Every one of them. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness more than uh, your companions. And so here he is, God himself, divinity. Scripture is supporting uh, the fact that he is divine. In passing, we, we don't want to miss this word companions. It's a key word for this book. The Greek word here is metakus. But when we look in the best one-volume Greek dictionary for this word and its meaning, it means sharing or participating in. Now, our partner is, is even better. In fact, in the French, uh, they call this co-interessant, which meant to be a, uh, an equal shareholder, or not an equal, a shareholder in a company. Uh, you, were a, you were a partner. It'd be like a, uh, a limited partnership we might have today. Maybe you have a general partner, and that would be Jesus, and he has some limited partners, but he's got partners. Well, who are these partners? Well, if we go back uh, to uh, Psalm 45, which is his quoting, it's a marriage ceremony. It's, it's a wedding feast. And at the wedding feast, he has invited his closest friends. Uh, you might call them the groomsmen. Well, uh, as we go back to this word, we find that it's used over and over in the book of Hebrews uh, for you and me. 
uh, as partners in this wonderful kingdom that God is going to have for us. Uh, time pressing, let's go on. And you in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, you will remain, they will grow old like a garment. You're going to fold them up. So he's going here to the end of the created world, as we know, and he folds it up just as he went to the beginning at one time. Right now he's sustaining it. Uh, he's the gluon. That's the word that they use for the strong nuclear force that's holding the nucleus together. We've got the gravity of the weakest force, electromagnetism, the second uh, weak force uh, that allows our wireless systems to work, Wi-Fi and everything. And then we have the weak nuclear force, which helps us understand half-lives and radiation, all that stuff. But the strong nuclear force keeps the nucleus together, busts that nucleus, and busts enough of them, and you can have an atomic bomb, right? A lot of power there. He's the one holding that together. Uh, Colossians 1.18 says, In him all things hold together, consist. Well, at his word he created it, and at his word it's going to fold up. And finally, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Finally, he's back to exaltation. He's come full circle using verses uh, from the Bible to support, uh, from the Old Testament to support what he's saying. Psalm 110 has one very unique thing I want to show you if I can. And that is, it says here, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said, and Shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, he goes into the battle of Armageddon right here. Take a little more time to... He's going to execute kings in the day of his wrath. That's the battle of Armageddon. Fill the places with dead bodies. And then look at this. He's going to execute the heads of many countries. Every English translation I've ever read on this, translates this heads, plural. The Hebrew is very clear on this, it's singular. It's rosh, singular, no debate. But they don't translate it singular because 99% of the people out there aren't dispensationalists, they don't believe in the Antichrist, they don't believe that Jesus will come back at the Battle of Armageddon, they don't believe he will execute the Antichrist, uh, but that's what the Hebrew says here, amazing stuff. What's God's message to you out of all this? He wants you to be a partaker. He wants you to be a sharer, uh, shares in the company. He wants you to be his closest friend. He wants you to become a son. He, as we said when we started uh, in Hebrews 2, verse 10, was willing to suffer it was fitting for him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's your destiny. Uh, that's why God created you. He didn't create you to come into heaven uh, waving your baby rattle. He created you to come in as a mature daughter, a mature son, uh, dressed in the robes of righteousness that he has uh, for you. And uh, you not only get 
the robes of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Revelation 19 says you get a wedding dress uh, made out of the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, it's an exciting uh, prospect. It gives meaning to life. It gives a transcendent cause to live for that enables you to go through all kinds of suffering uh, in this world. As a matter of fact, through the suffering we are made perfect because quite often the suffering uh, peels us away from our attachment uh, to this world. I spent much of this week with my former youth pastor, actually, uh, and uh, he uh, got a virus two weeks ago, went to his heart, and now his heart is, is all but quit. They moved him down to St. Luke's in Houston. Uh, they're going to hold him there until they can find a heart transplant. If that doesn't happen, they'll have some sort of artificial device. He's 47 years old. That's suffering, folks. This is a guy who's a foster parent, uh, has three kids of his own, has adopted two more, and has had in the last 15 years I've known him probably 30 kids, maybe 50, go through his home. My, my, my. There's only one way to even begin to grapple with that kind of suffering. It's through the book of Hebrews. It's through the world to come. It's through what the second Adam is going to do in that millennial reign and in the new Jerusalem. And it's his invitation and it's his desire and his greatest wish for you and I to enter that. And when you live for that, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you have a transcendent cause, something higher, a higher purpose that can enable you to go through the many nonsensical things that happen to us on this earth. So glad I could be with you today. Hope you glean something from this, and thank you for allowing us to uh, use you as a bit of an experiment to see if this would work as a format for our school as well. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.